You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we're continuing. John chapter 18, verse 12 this morning. And what we're going to explore today is the role of fear and deceit and falsehood and pride in the denial of truth. We're going to explore the role of fear and deceit, falsehood and pride in denying the truth, specifically in denying the Christ who is the truth. Our passage this morning in John 18, verses 12 through 27, think of it like a movie. Two simultaneous tracks of events happening. There's what's happening with Jesus as the sham trial advances against him, the sham interrogations advance against him. And then there's what's happening with Peter as he progresses through his failure and his denial of the Christ. These events are happening concurrently. And our passage this morning holds it out like this, a story about Jesus, a story about Peter, a story about Jesus, a story about Peter. For ease of preaching, I'm going to preach them together. I'm going to go the part about Jesus in the trial all together, and then I'm going to preach all the stuff about Peter all together. They're happening concurrently, okay? So we'll start here in verse 12, beginning with the trials. What we're going to see in, throughout the course of this chapter and 19 is that what Pastor Brett preached for us last week was that Jesus was seized in the garden by this band of soldiers, dragged out of Gethsemane, bound. And he's led in our passage this morning to a man named Annas, who we're going to talk about. And then Annas is going to kick him down the line to Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law before the court of the Sanhedrin. And then Caiaphas is going to bring him before Pilate. And then Pilate is going to kick him off to Herod, and then Herod is going to send him back to Pilate, and then Pilate is going to crucify him at the request of the mob. So as we work our way through the advancing of this sham trial, sham sequence of interrogations, we're going to pause this morning to just focus on Jesus' presence before these two men, Annas and Caiaphas. A little history lesson for you guys this morning. There's only supposed to be one high priest. But the passage reads confusing because it's like he's brought before the high priest and we're talking about this guy, Annas, and they says, and then they brought him before the high priest. They're talking about this guy, Caiaphas. Why? At this point in history, it was customary for the Romans to appoint their own high priest over the nation of Israel for it to be expedient for them politically. And so history tells us that in around AD 15, 15, 17, 18 years before these events, that the Romans had deposed of Annas. He had been the high priest, but it was Jewish custom for them to observe a high priest for life. And so the Romans said, no, you're not the acting high priest anymore. Now it's Caiaphas, your son-in-law. And so the Jews would have been confused. Is Caiaphas, the acting high priest, our high priest, or is Annas, our high priest? And so they've got Jesus bound and there's, well, who do we bring him to? And they bring him first to Annas. And what I want to hold out for you guys this morning as we're kind of building the backstory so that we can get to the, the heart of the ideas behind this stuff is that this is not a small point. 
I want you to see the great irony and even hypocrisy of, what's, of the stage that's being set here. We are going to put on trial the king of the universe, the great high priest, and we don't even know who is the head of our own court to bring him to. Let's go to Annas first. He's the senior high priest. He was there first. And what we know about Annas is that he was highly influential. He still held great sway in this time. He and Caiaphas seem to be reigning together in the book of Acts. Five of his family members, in addition to his son-in-law Caiaphas, would hold the title of high priest in the first century. And so Annas is a highly influential man. So they start there. It seems right. So they bring him to the, to the courtyard of Annas. That's verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him and first they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I'm going to hold that until we get to Caiaphas. Verse 19, if you could skip ahead for me. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. We're talking about Annas and his teaching. And so Jesus is before Annas bound in his courtyard. And he starts to question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus, talk to me about what you've been teaching. And Jesus answers him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, testify about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And then Anna sends him bound to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. So here brought before Annas, Anna starts to question Jesus. And Jesus does a very loving thing for Annas, and I need you guys to see this. He appeals to him as a high priest. He holds out to him the, the, the lunacy of what is happening here. Why are you asking me to testify about myself when I've not done this secretly? Why are we doing this in the middle of the night? Why am I bound before you in your courtyard? Why are you asking me what I taught? Everything that I've done, my whole ministry, has been public. I taught right in the synagogues. You could have seized me at any time. I taught right in the temple. You could have seized me at any time. Everything that I've said, I've said publicly. If you want to know what I said, go and gather those who, hear, who heard me and ask them. They can tell you. Why, why are we doing it this way, Annas? Why are we doing it this way, Annas? What are you doing, Annas? Very loving appeal of truth in Annas's ears because Annas as a high priest would have known the Jewish laws. He would have known how this works. If he's got a charge against Jesus, he's going to need the agreement of multiple credible witnesses. And Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be lacking for that. If you've got a charge, my whole ministry was public. Go gather the witnesses. Ask them what I said. This would be open and shut. Why are we doing it like this, Annas? Ask those who have heard me what I said. And Jesus is doing something brilliant and loving. He is bringing to Annas' attention that if you lack credible witnesses that you need to ask me directly, 
then you have to acknowledge that this is a sham in the first place. And secondly, I'm giving you the opportunity to agree with me and repent. This is the first of many opportunities as these trials advance where Jesus gives people an opportunity to repent. This could have stopped at any point. It needed to go no further. This deposed high priest could have said to Jesus, yeah, yeah, what what are we doing? I know better. Let this man go. Instead, what happens to Jesus? He is struck by an officer, and then Jesus says to him, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about that. But if what I've said is right, why did you strike me? And then Annas passes it along to Caiaphas. And we've seen this, haven't we? This type of behavior. In the face of truth, when I don't have an answer, I resort to violence. We are living in a day where this is all too common. I have my truth, you have your truth, and as long as our two truths can be our own truth, but as soon as you try to tell me that my truth's not the truth and that there is a one objective truth, I, I don't want to hear that, that can't fall on my ears, that even claims that your truth is violence against me in order to justify my return of violence against you. If I've said something false, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? These words are fitting today, but this is what the wicked do. They strike down the truth speaker because they cannot bear to hear it. And before you nod along as you think about some other entity out there that may behave this way, church, inspect yourself. Hear from me this morning. Husbands, when your wife brings to you a charge of sin against you, and her testimony is true, and you don't want to hear it, how do you respond? Do you raise your voice in order to silence this sister in Christ, this one who is one with you, who is bringing to you as a gesture of love and opportunity to repent and silence her as you dominate her with your voice? Do you impose your size on her in order to silence her husband? Do you gaslight and redirect? Hey, let's talk about your failures. What right do you have to bring to me the truth? You who are governed by so many of your own inconsistencies. When your own children come to you and question you in your sin, Dad, I'm I'm confused here. How dare you question your father? Are you a bully in your home? Unquestionable? Unable to have truth brought to you? Can a brother in Christ bring your sin before you as an opportunity to repent? And quickly your mind is manufacturing like a factory all of the disqualifications for why this man has no right to speak truth into your life. And like Annas, you cannot hear truth. And so you strike the truth speaker. 
Repent. The one who speaks truth into your life is your best friend. It is for your good. Wives, you're not off the hook. Maybe not through shouting, maybe through shouting. Through passive aggression. Truth comes my way and quickly I want to point to all of the failures of my spiritual head to say, you can't lead me because I've disqualified you on the basis of this and this and this. Show me progress in these areas and maybe you can talk to me about that later. Whatever it takes to strike down and cut down the truth speaker because we do not want to hear it. Church, it is our enemy, the devil, who is the father of lies, the father of deceit. If you are to call yourself Christian, to brandish your name with the name of Christ, then you are to be a lover of the truth and you are to rejoice when even hard truth is spoken to you as this is an opportunity, an extension from your God to come into the light and to be restored in fellowship to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to your family, and to your Lord. But Annas strikes him and kicks, it down, kicks him down to Caiaphas. Now, the account of John doesn't give us the line of questioning for Caiaphas, but the Synoptic Gospels give us lots. I'll summarize it for you. But it kind of goes like this. Caiaphas is... He's standing before Jesus, and Caiaphas is the acting high priest over the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the highest court of the nation of Israel, ruling over Jerusalem. And there are certain authorities that the Sanhedrin had that the lesser courts did not. One of them is that they could rule to expand or change the borders of the holy city Jerusalem. One of them is that only they could try the king. And so it is interesting that Jesus is brought before them and not some lesser court. So Caiaphas is losing the trial. He's losing his case before Pilate in the presence of the Sanhedrin because he needed Judas to show up. He was the star witness. He was the key witness. This is the one who led to Jesus' arrest, but Judas had gone off to kill himself on account of what he had done. In the absence of a star witness... It says that Caiaphas, that there, were, that there were multiple false testimonies being born against Jesus, but that they did not agree. So the mob had all kinds of things to say about Jesus and all that he'd said and done, but they couldn't agree on it. And in the absence of agreeing credible witnesses, Caiaphas started to despair, the Gospel of Matthew documents, that he had an insufficient case to call for the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, in the meantime, is silent before his accusers, and this is frustrating the rulers because he won't incriminate himself. And in desperation, Caiaphas says in Matthew 26, I charge you, Jesus, under, the oath by the living, under oath by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say. 
Nevertheless, I tell you that from now on you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heavens. And then the Gospel of Matthew testifies that Caiaphas tears his robes and says, I've heard enough. I got what I was looking for. Kill him. Unless some of you wonder whether or not Jesus ever claimed to be God, I need you to understand why Caiaphas tore his robes. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Let me read this to you, and you tell me if it sounds familiar. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These are the words ringing in Caiaphas's ears as he hears Jesus answer him, Not only am I who you say, I am the Son of Man that you will see coming in the clouds of heaven that Daniel prophesied about. That guy, that's me. Caiaphas says, I've heard enough. The proper response in that moment was for Caiaphas and the whole crowd to fall on their faces and worship the king of heaven. And instead, what Jesus heard were shouts to crucify him. And some of you have heard a rebuke from me this morning about the bullying, domineering way in which you evade hearing the truth while still some others of you wield the truth like a weapon, where Jesus, who speaks the truth to the ears of the people in order that they might bow and worship, in order that they might repent and turn from their sin, for their good, he declares the truth over them, and in their wickedness, their ears are stuffed up and they will not hear it, but it is for them that he speaks the truth. But you are wielding the truth in your life like a weapon, looking for someone to injure with the truth, not looking for someone to restore, not wielding it like a weapon to tear down the arguments against your Christ, but looking to tear down a brother or a sister in Christ. When sin is brought to your ears, you delight that you have something with which you can tear somebody down. Listen to me. When your brother or your sister in the faith, when your wife or your husband or your children in the faith bring to you their own sin, when they confess to you the sin, see the connection here. What is happening is their voice is speaking truth. Confession is agreement with God. God is reigning in them in the moment of their confession. God is speaking through them in the moment of their confession. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables a broken saint to confess his sin and to repent. And in that moment, when God is working through your brother or sister to confess their sin before you and they are outed, and you say, gotcha, and you say, crucify him, You're Caiaphas. You're Annas. You're not behaving like your Lord. You're behaving like the mob. 
What are we doing? The church should be the safest place in the world to speak the truth, to have the truth spoken to you and to speak the truth about you. And yet how many of us are living in hiding in this room right now, afraid to speak the truth about what we know is true in our lives right now, hiding away sin, living in wickedness, unwilling and unable to bring it into the light in part because we fear that the, tr- that the church will cry, crucify him. Not that has been covered in the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And don't you dare hear that as an excuse to continue in hiding. Because since your Lord walked before you and heard those words spoken over you, you can walk even into the face of persecution and walk in the light because you've got your covering in Him. There is no room for codependency in the church. To say, I need you to respond a certain way before I can walk into the light is to say, you are my Savior. Jesus is your Savior. This church will fail you in responding the way that it ought to respond. That will happen. And many people, better than you, have walked away from the church and said, I don't need it in that hour. And I am telling you, Let the church fail you because all you are seeing is a brother who is failing just as you fail. You're seeing somebody who needs him just like you do. And in that way, in the hands of God, even the failures of your brothers in Christ are useful as a tool to point you to your need for grace and to their need. Likewise, it is all for your good. Let's move on to Peter. Second sermon. All this is happening, and Simon Peter is following Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This is verse 15. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Just so you're not tripped up on it, we're probably talking about John, the other disciple. He never names himself in his gospel account. He always refers to himself as the other disciple, another disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. We also know about John that his father was likely wealthy. We read in one of the gospel accounts that John's father had several servants, and so it's probably due to his wealth that he has company with the high priest. That's all speculation. But one of the disciples felt comfortable walking right into the courtyard of, the high, of, of, of Annas' courtyard. Probably John. And so Simon Peter is with this other disciple, and this other disciple walks into the courtyard. Peter waits at the gate. This other disciple talks to the servant girl guarding the door, and she opens it for Peter, and Peter comes in. And the servant girl asks Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 25, skipping down. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself until they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. 
And so we see two simultaneous streams of events. First, in pride and fear, we see the denial of truth, the denial of the truth, Jesus Christ, in Annas and Caiaphas. You'll remember, looking back to verse 14, that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This was back from John 11. We preached it several months ago. But Caiaphas speaks this unwittingly, knowing the, the gospel testifies that he was speaking a prophecy and didn't even know it. But what Caiaphas had been afraid of was that if there's this guy and he's claiming to be a king and he's gaining a follower and there's supposed to be only one king but Caesar in these days of Roman occupation, that we're going to lose whatever favor we have with the Romans and they're going to take away our place as a nation if they hear that there's this this mob growing, this band of people pledging their allegiance to someone else. He says, it's better that we just strike this guy down than that all the people should suffer. His fear over their status before man, before the nations, is what drives him to want to kill Jesus. It's fear. Ultimately, it's fear. And in this way, Caiaphas is no different from Peter. It is fear that causes Peter to speak a lie here, three times doubling down on this lie. I don't know him. I'm not with him. I don't know him. I'm not with him. He can't even testify to his discipleship to Jesus before a servant girl, especially as he looks around across this charcoal fire and sees that there are officers warming themselves too within earshot. I do not want to be associated with him because I'm afraid. You see the role of fear in causing us to deny the truth. But let's look at the character of Peter. We really are, I don't find it very surprising because we've been seeing this development of his character. Peter, the Galilean fisherman, three years ago, called off that fishing boat after witnessing a miracle to come forward and to follow Jesus. He says, I will make you a fisher of men. For three years he walks with him. He's an eyewitness to all the great miracles. He sees Lazarus raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. The fish and the loaves multiply. He sees Jesus speak to the sea and the storm and calm. And he sees Jesus walk on water. He himself walks on water. Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transfigured. Peter was the first to call Jesus the Christ. But what else do we see of Peter? We see that he loved the conquering Messiah, but he hated and was terrified of the suffering Messiah. You'll remember when Jesus starts to teach more clearly that the Son of Man must be lifted up and die, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. He says, don't talk like that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is on the things of the world, not on the things of heaven. When in the upper room, Jesus kneels down to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter wants no part of it. He is repulsed at the sight. Jesus has to persuade him to let him wash his feet. Seeing Jesus as the lowly servant terrified him. When the guard shows up to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, what does Peter do? He pulls out the sword and starts lopping at Roman heads. And here at the trial, seeing his Savior bound, he denies him three times. Every time Peter was confronted with the suffering Messiah, Peter pulled back. Peter pulled back. Peter said, no, 
No. Peter vowed in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Peter said, I will never betray you. I will follow you even unto my death. And Jesus prophesied and said, before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. And here we read the account. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then the third time, the rooster crows. In Luke chapter 22, we read that Jesus looked out over the courtyard and locked eyes with Peter when he denied him the third time. And then Peter hears the rooster crow and he weeps and flees from that place. And by all accounts, it appears that Peter was not there when Jesus was crucified. He fled, and we don't hear from him again until after the resurrection. See, what Jesus said to Peter when Peter said, I will never betray you. I will follow you even unto my death. Jesus says, Peter, you won't even follow me unto my death without my help. You're going to deny me three times, and that's exactly what happens. And friends, I have a hard word for you this morning, but I beseech you to hear it. I've been teaching this my whole adult life. Greater men than you and I have walked away from Jesus Christ in the hour that suffering visited them because it reveals that it was never actually Christ that they were worshiping. And I, I know it sounds like I'm speaking in a hypothetical, but I'm not. I'm talking about my friend John from up in Chicago who followed the Lord for 25 years by all accounts from the outside until he got chronic back pain. And then he boldly renounced the faith after five years of back pain because this God that I've been worshiping would never do this to me. And I agree with him. The God that you've been worshiping would not do this to you, but I don't know what God you've been worshiping. But it wasn't Jesus. When God touches the thing that you have decided is untouchable, when suffering visits you, the truth comes out. Who are you worshiping? When you pray, does the voice you hear back always say what you wanted to hear? Does the will of God always, somehow, happen to be what you were going to do anyway? When hardship comes your way, do you shake your fist at your God for not behaving obediently? Think it through. When you charge God in your mind, and maybe it's not that audacious, when you turn away from him and silence him, what drives you to do it? I'll tell you, my experience most often is suffering. No problem that Jesus suffered long as I don't have to suffer. I'm untouchable. Son of God, no problem. 
it will reveal what is inside a man. And many will walk away in that hour. And so I ask you, church, to search yourself and ask, are you worshiping a Jesus that you have created in your mind? A Jesus with a laundry list of things that he would never do because you've said he'd never do that. So that when you see him in a way that you're unwilling to see him, you say, I'm out. That's what Peter did. And Peter saw things you've never seen. And he walked away. And I'm going to steal from a sermon I'm going to preach in May. I'm counting on you guys forgetting it. In John 21, Jesus is resurrected. And the women who were there at the crucifixion, they go to his tomb and they're greeted by an angel. And the angel of the Lord will say to them, why are you weeping? What are you doing here? He has risen just as he said he would. Go and gather his disciples. And Mark records it this way. Go gather his disciples and Peter and tell them that he wants to meet with them. Why does the angel say, go gather the disciples and Peter? For several reasons. One, the women who were at the crucifixion and Peter wasn't, Peter denied Jesus publicly three times in front of Jesus and in front of John. It would have been known to the disciples that Peter had denied him. But let's suppose that I'm wrong about that. If they went and told Peter, the angel said, go gather the disciples, it would have been unclear to Peter if the angel meant Peter because he knew that he had denied him three times to his face in his hour of greatest need. But the angel says, go gather the disciples and Peter. And then Jesus, after the resurrection, appears at the seaside. Peter, in his grief, is out doing the one thing that he's good at. He's returned to the life that he had before he was called off that boat, and he is fishing. And he has caught nothing again. And, P and Jesus shows up, and he does the fish miracle again. He, Peter's like, it's the Lord. And he jumps out of the boat, and he runs to the shore. And Jesus has set up none other than a charcoal fire. Only two times in the New Testament do we see this word for charcoal fire. When Peter is warming himself by it as he denies his Lord, and then when Peter is eating breakfast by it as he receives restoration from his Lord. And so Jesus breaks bread and he hands it to Peter. Peter would have seen the upper room. He multiplies the fish, 253 of them, but the nets are not torn. He would have been reminded of his original calling and of the multiplying of the bread and the fish. He would smell the charcoal fire and be reminded of his failure. And then Jesus is going to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Replaying a theater. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Peter will be able to answer, Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. But the third time it says, Peter was grieved to the heart because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he says back to him, Jesus, you know everything. You've got to imagine going through his mind in that moment. It's everything. I'm trying to answer you. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you three times, I, I love you, but you, you know everything. You saw me. I denied you three times while you watched. You said I would, and I did. You saw me. You know my sin, you know my whole story, you know everything, but that means you must know that even with, if it's just with the mustard seed of faith here, I do love you, however feebly, however frail. 
But church, you know what Jesus says next? He tells him how he's going to die. He tells Peter in a prophecy, when you are old, they're going to take you where you do not want to go, and they're going to stretch out your arms. And our gospel writer tells us that it's to testify to the way that Jesus was going to die. And church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he did not find himself worthy to be killed in the same manner as his Lord. It's like Jesus is taking him back up to that upper room and saying to him, remember when you said, you follow me even unto death? Now that I've died for you, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you, Peter, you will. And Peter would. And Peter did. And I like to think about Peter, about how before he had the Holy Spirit, before he saw the resurrected Jesus, this part's for you, church, before he had all that, a little servant girl asking him around a fire, are you one of his disciples, was enough to terrify him, enough to renounce Christ and to flee. But upon seeing the resurrected Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit, when faced with a cross of his own, he would hold fast to the faith till the end. You are a post-resurrection people. Church, you are a post-resurrection people you have the Holy Spirit and the risen Christ interceding for you at the right hand. You have what Peter did not have on this day. And some of you have dragged yourself in here. You're hiding in plain sight. You have rejected God a long time ago. You're going through the motions, but you don't really love him. Your life is marked by rampant, unrepentant sin that only you know. And you really want nothing to do with God and what he has to say because he hurts you in some way. And that wasn't okay. Because he's not being the God that you want him to be. Because you're worshiping something you made up. Some of you have dragged yourself back to church after being away for a whole long time and it's everything for you just to be in here. But Jesus says, come have breakfast. Behold the risen Christ. There is forgiveness even for you who have denied Christ in the past, who denied Christ this morning, who grieved the Holy Spirit last night. There's nothing hidden from him. He knows everything. So if you identify with Peter, if you identify with Annas or Caiaphas, it is the love of God that the truth is being spoken to you. Rejoice and repent. And delight in your restoration. Be restored to God and man. This is the promise of the gospel. Mercy's door. This is really good news. I don't think any of you have probably sinned as bad as Peter. Have you renounced Christ 
publicly three times to his face. And even he could be restored. Take heart, repent, confess, and be restored. Let's pray.